Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today we're going to have Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. We're going to have the extended version, which makes me very happy. I'm gathered uh, today with my uh, panel, which is Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. We've got uh, Dr. Peter Kapsner in another country right now. I think he's overseas, and uh, 007 is 007, so we've got a very... We don't know where he is. We have no idea where he is. He could show up at any moment. He could. Well, I... Trust me, he's not showing up today. <laughs> but I would say, yes, most of the days he could show up. So we would love to take your questions, and we'd love to have uh, you text them over to me whenever you feel like it. Now would be a good time. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. If you like email, you can also try that, bill at myfaithradio.com. So last week I was uh, speaking at a little event, and a guy came up to me and said, well, what is your favorite place in Scripture where Jesus admits to his divinity? Mm-hmm. And that, that's an interesting question. It is a good question. Well, I think we have to start right at John chapter 1, where the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later in John, we learn that this Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So we know that the Word that John is describing here is Jesus himself. So the Word equals God equals Jesus. Mm -hmm. Read the rest of the chapter. Equals light, equals life, equals truth, equals love. And so all of these things, Jesus being equal to God. But there's actually... Um, many places. Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. Um, one of my favorites is in the resurrection of Christ. It says in Scripture that God raised Jesus from the dead. Elsewhere, it says that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And then Jesus, of course, says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again by my power. So the question is, well, who raised Jesus from the dead? Did God, did the Spirit, or did Jesus? And the answer is yes. God God did, right? They all did. And that points to um, the reality that Jesus was the divine in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Exactly. I always loved John 11 and Lazarus's, you know, funeral four days later. And Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall they live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the power of God. And there is nobody else in the universe that has the power of life and death or creation. And so Jesus is identifying himself as the creator. And he is the master over life and death itself. And that's where we have our confidence. And uh, I can't think of any better thing to talk about at a funeral than that reality. Because the person that's died, if they love Jesus, they're now in his presence. And for those at the funeral that don't know Jesus, he's giving them another opportunity. You know, that Christ as creator 
it comes through several places too. In John 1, I didn't mention this earlier, but it says that that although all things were made through him, and Colossians 1, it says, by him all things were created, things visible and invisible. So we have in the New Testament the declaration that Jesus is actually the instrument in which everything was created. Well, Genesis 1 says God created the heavens and the earth. With the New Testament revelation, we can go right back to Genesis chapter 1 and know that it's God through Jesus Christ, that all things were made that were made. I think that if we probe deeper into the Bible, which I know you've done, Jeff, and you've done, Bill, and I try to, you go deeper into the Bible and keep studying, and suddenly you start getting new understanding of who this Jesus really was. He wasn't just a human that walked in flesh. He wasn't just the Son of God, as though he's somewhere down the hierarchy there. He had literally God himself who's come among us and has done all of this, not because we deserve it, but because of who he is. It's amazing. Hmm. So he says to Philip, Philip, if you, it, Philip was asking to sh- show us the Father. And his answer is <laughs> amazing. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And there's actually a number of very dramatic scenes in the, in the Gospels that, where Jesus calms the winds and calms the waves. There's, now, don't ask me to quote the exact where these are, but in the Old Testament, it says that God has the power to calm the seas and, and calm the winds, right? So when Jesus gets up and calms the seas and calms the wind, he's doing what the average Jew would have known only God can do. Mm. And so there's a declaration of his divinity as well. See, here's one of the advantages we have as Christians, and we should be doing this as we're teaching. We are 2,000 years on the other side of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He is eternally God, eternally Lord. When we study the Old Testament— as well as the new, and I believe strongly in both. When we study the Old Testament, though, and teach it, Jesus has already said, I'm there. I'm there over and over and over. And good teachers have to be the ones to help say, look at this text in Genesis, like you just did, Jeff. Look at this text over here that says this. Could that be Jesus himself? And 99.9% of the time, the answer is yes. Well, that's when when why when he asked his, his disciple, why does David said, "My Lord said to my Lord," right? Who is the Lord to his disciples? He said, "Before Abraham was, I am." Uh, we haven't even talked about the "I am" statements no, yet, right? A ton so, of those. Yeah. So, you know, the world knew the Jews knew that when God introduced Himself to Moses, and he and Moses asked him, "Who shall I say sent me?" He says, "I am." That I am. I am the existent one, basically. Right. Well, in the New Testament, there are multiple times, seven of them actually, where Jesus says and answers a question with I am. Now, in the English, often it will be translated as I am he. Right. But I think in the original Aramaic, which was right. what he had been speaking, he probably just said I am. Well, and that's where the Pharisees got so furious. Exactly. They know exactly what he was saying. And he could do miracles in front of them, and then they'd go out and figure out how to kill him. Because he was treading on their territory and claiming the very one you've been worshiping in the temple, the very one you claim you follow his laws, I'm here, and you're not paying attention to me. And John 10, if anybody ever says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, oh, right? He did, number over one. Over and over. And the, and the people around him understood that he claimed to be God because they tried to kill him. John 10 says, why are you trying to kill me? They say, because you, a mere man, claimed to be God. Yep. So you may not think he didn't claim to be God, but those who were around him 
understood he was claiming divinity and tried to kill him for it, and eventually did. Gee, Bill, what was your answer? Well, thanks for asking. <laughs> um, I was going to well, this, the divinity of Christ I, I, is about I, as important as a doctrine as we have in Christianity. Well, I know, right? I know. So, it's, it I is want, dangerous to, talk, to get Jeff and I together here. <laughs> I, I want to keep talking about this a lot because I think this is good. I want to go through some of the I am uh, statements as well. But I responded from uh, <laughs> John chapter 4, and when he's t- uh, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. And the woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Hmm. Wow. That's such a kapawi verse, isn't it? Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. I would love to have been there uh, because I'm sure that um, I would have fallen right to the ground Yeah, to be in the presence of the Messiah, mm-hmm. God himself. What an incredible moment that must have been. Yeah, like the soldiers that arrested him in Gethsemane that night. They fall, fell to the ground. They sure did. Why did they do that? Uh, in the presence of the Lord. <laughs> I mean, you know, Joshua falls down before the angel of the Lord, which was probably Christ, by the way. I think that was a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The mm-hmm. theophany is what they call it. And so he fell down to the Lord. I mean, I, I think, you know the song I can only imagine Will we be able to stand at all, right, when we get there? And uh, I love that line in that that very powerful song of what we'll be like once we're finally in the presence of the Lord. And uh, it's it, Corinthians says, The eye has not seen, nor the ear heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man the wonders that we are going to experience once we're in glory with mm-hmm. him. I love the scripture passage that says, At the name of Jesus... Every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In one of the churches I served, we put that whole verse right up front. You walk in the door, that's what you see. Uh, There's a point for that, because he is God among us, and because the day is coming. And I've told the congregation this many times. Either you voluntarily learn to kneel now, or you will be forced to kneel on that day. You don't want to be forced to kneel. You want to just drop your knees in his presence and start right now. There's that line from that one song, and the greatest treasure remains to those who gladly choose him now. You are going to know one day that Jesus is Lord. You're either going to do it in this life and submit to him and trust in him for your salvation, or you're going to learn it at the at the final judgment, to be quite frank, at the great white throne judgment. When and I, I believe that's the day when that will happen, when all of creation will be before God and Christ. Exactly. So and my smart listener uh, with his Bible brain showed up, Luke, and he said, um, Psalm 89.9, you rule the swelling of the sea. When it wa- when its waves rise, you still them. I think that's the I reference. Think I looked it up. I think it's Psalm 107 that I was thinking of. Okay. Let me, let me just, uh, I just lost it here. Don't contradict one of my listeners. I know. I'm sorry. That's that, that, yeah, wind and waves, and that sounds good. <laughs> I'll, I'll look up this one. Oh, so 107.29, that's it. I got it right here. What is it? 107.29 says, He stills the storm to a whisper. The waves of the seas were hushed. Ooh, I love that. And you go to the New Testament. What does he do on the Sea of Galilee when everything's uh, storming and it's, it's a mess and the disciples are afraid? And here comes Jesus walking by. <laughs> you know, I mean... He could calm the storm. And so I think if you if you really pay attention, like you're talking about, Jeff and Bill, in the Old Testament, to these phrases, you see the connection in the New Testament. The problem is most of us don't have a way to always see that connection. But if we do, it's, it's, I'm all struck by it. 
It is over and over and over telling us the same thing, and we need to hear it clearly. You know, there's another one in Psalm 80, verse 1. God says that he is a shepherd of his people. Well, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the shepherd of Israel, and you have one shepherd over you, and that's Christ. And uh, so there's another imagery from the Old Testament that is applied to God, that in the New Testament, it's applied to Christ. All right, we'll take a little break. Send me your questions over. Text them to 877-933-2484. I'll give you the number again, 877-933-2484. It's Guide Talk, or Guys Who Talk. Power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish. Jeff Verdorn will be right back. today. So glad to have Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk happening right now. So send your questions over. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Question came in, then I want to get back to the I am statements, but let's deal with this for now. Can you help make sense of why John 8, the adulterous woman, was not in the original manuscript and why then in the Bible? Jeff, you've got the two uh, texts there. There, yes. there, there are a whole plethora of texts that they found, but there are two major texts that our Bible is translated from. Almost everything is translated. Go ahead, Jeff. Well, there's a uh, one of the lines is the Byzantine line. One is the Alexandria line, and I'm I don't know this very well. I've taught on it a little bit, but not a ton. But the, you have to decide if you're going to translate which major group of ancient uh, texts are you going to use as your basis for translating into English. And my understanding is the difference between the two is one of them's a little bit older, but one of them is more common. It's more popular. There's more copies. So you got to decide, are we going to take the ones that seem to be more popular and common, or are we going to take the one that's a little bit older? And I think it's important, first off, for every Christian to understand that you can trust your English Bible. The differences oh, yeah. between these two are not that great. And in fact, if you have an NIV study Bible, I use an NIV study Bible most of the time when I'm studying. Every time there's a dis- uh, difference between these two major lines, the NIV study Bible notes it and will say some manuscripts say yeah. such and such. Some manuscripts say such and such. And if you study your Bible, you find out that these differences are not that common. There's a couple main passages. The passage in Mark, I believe, about the snakes and stuff like that, and this one are probably two of the biggest chunks of Scripture in the in the New Testament that are debated. Um, so that's what I know. What we live in the best um, day and age. Do you realize that in the last 100 years, archaeology has uncovered more of these manuscripts and more truths of the Bible that have affirmed the Bible than in the previous 1900 years. And so we live at a time where we're getting a plethora of these texts that are starting to show up. And it's amazing. There were 25,000 extant manuscripts around the world of the New Testament. It's amazing. And like I was mentioning earlier, in Jude, they not long ago they discovered the text earlier than any other text we've ever had from Jude where it says in verse 5, and now I want to remind you, although once you fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, 
afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Judah's giving credit to Jesus Mm. as the one who brought the children out of Israel. Mm. And that was, we've never had that before until these earlier manuscripts, and they have been verified as being, you know, almost 2,000 years old. That's incredible. So the, the translators always struggle between what communicates in our language and what did the text actually say. And the older the text, they feel it better if they can find several copies of that that are a little older, they add a little bit or whatever's there. But it's there. As Tom said, I know we have 20,000, 25,000 complete manuscripts of Scripture um, from various sources from around the world. But we also have thousands and thousands of pieces of Scripture where people quoted it and wrote out past, just like you would write a letter and quote something from the Bible. Well, we can rebuild, and guess what? They are all consistent with what we know in the New Testament. So the the bottom line is when you take a, a textual criticism approach to the New Testament, it was written within years after the original manuscripts. We have many copies, and the differences between those copies are actually very, very small. So as a result, our conclusion can be is that we can have a very high degree of confidence that the the Greek manuscripts we have today are, uh, are, are accurate to the original manuscripts. And so then the next question is, we need to translate Greek into English in order for us to understand it. And then that gets to kind of translation methodologies. How do you interpret the Greek into the English? And that's what the different different versions of the Bible basically are. I heard one scientist or one researcher say this. He said, researchers say this. He said, we have more reliability in the 66 books of the Bible historically than we do in Shakespeare's plays. He said, we... I didn't realize Romeo and Juliet, there are three acts. The middle one has disappeared. Nobody knows what the middle one is. We have made it up over the years to kind of fill in between Act 1 and Act 3. We don't have it. And that was only a couple hundred years ago. I didn't know that. Now we have the uh, this Bible that was written over a long period of time, is at least 2,000 years old, and yet the accuracy level is is above 99.9%. And so there isn't anything to worry about. I remember one young man who thought he was really wise came to me after a service, and he said... You know, Pastor, I, I go to the university. I'm here with my girlfriend. You know the Bible's full of contradictions. I don't know why. I had the New Testament in my pocket, and I pulled it out. And I handed it to him. I said, show me. <laughs> and he never said another word about that, and later he became a believer. It took some time. Hmm. Make you fall in love, too. That kind of helped. So the combination, <laughs> but we led him to Christ. It's This is true about the Old Testament, by the way, which is the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Why that was so significant of a find, I think back in the 50s or early 60s, I believe, and I've been at the museum in Jerusalem where they keep the scrolls, and it's a very cool place. It's that that, those copies, those scrolls, were hundreds of years older than the oldest manuscripts that we had of the Old Testament prior to that. Yes. So the question is, okay, what changes have crept into those texts over those hundreds of years? Well, you start going through verse by verse, line by line and line. Guess what? Virtually no changes. And if you've ever watched someone replicate a scroll on a, a roll, scroll with an ink pen, and I've watched a Jewish man do this, copying it by hand, they have a methodology that uh, that to ensure that they are copying it accurately, and they do it meticulously. And but 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 regardless, we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls that virtually no errors crept in over those. And the ones that did were punctuation or spelling or whatever. Mm-hmm. When you do literary analysis and you, you like take twenty five thousand copies of the New Testament and compare them 
copy to copy, you look for a corruption rate. Right. Uh, is there a lot of corruption that's going on between the copies? And the, the percentage is so minuscule, so tiny, that it is, uh, in antiquity, the, the most reliable piece of literature in all of antiquity. Yeah, it is. And I've actually heard uh, scientists and researchers say it is miraculous that it would happen this way. You can't even do this in a kindergarten class when you pay telephone from one kid to the other, let alone over thousands of years. And one of the critiques of the Bible is, oh, it's just a bunch of stories passed on from generation to generation, and it's unreliable, and so on. It's like, no, the New Testament was written written down in the lifetimes of people that knew Jesus, right? And the Old Testament, like we just talked about, is a collection of stories written by authors. And and in the end, it is divine. In the end, you need to get to the point where you understand that all Scripture is God-breathed, right? It is all inspired by God. From the beginning to the end, it's God's voice. He speaks through some 40 authors written over 1,500 years, over three continents, but it is a consistent message from beginning to end. The internal consistency of Scripture uh, in itself is one of the proofs that this is divine. Right, So that's one story from beginning to end. And there are no contradictions in Scripture. Mm-hmm. There are, everything in the Bible is proven to be historically accurate, whether it's scientific, histor- history, archaeology, have proved the things written in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So there are websites out there where you can look at contradictions. And there are some apparent contradictions. But when you truly understand it and study it, you find that those contradictions melt away. All right, I've got a longer question that is going to, address this contradiction question that just Mm -hmm. came up. We'll do that after the break. But before we go to break, because we only have 90 seconds, I think we can answer this one quickly. Um, It's a basic question surrounding Reformed theology. Are all Protestants of Reformed theology? Or where does that come out of? Pastor? That's a big question. Yeah, I mean... Good thing we're going to break soon. Yeah, I'm happy about (laughs) that. You have to look at each... Each strain of the, of the of the Protestants that came out of that, most of them in the initial years with with Luther and those, there was some similarity and some what we understand. But it, over time, no, I can't say that they're all uniform. They're not, and they're they're kind of all over the place. But Jeff, what do you think? Anything you want to add to that? Well, Reformed uh, Reformation right. uh, comes from the Protestant Reformation, Protestant protest. Uh, what was Martha, Martin Luther doing? He was protesting basically the teachings, the doctrines of Rome. So he he nails his 95 thesis up on the door and he says, hey, I have issues with these things. Um, Remember, one of the main things is that salvation is by faith alone. So that was one of the big issues. But once that group broke away from the Catholic Church, you have a wide variety of views today, you know, 500 years later. Yeah. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we want to answer your questions. Do our very best to do that. 877-933-2484. You can text them over. 877-933-2484. If you like email, bill at myfaithradio.com. Jump in your car. Yeah. What's for dinner? Hey. It's the afternoon. 
Thank you for joining us today. Guy Talk is happening. If you just got in your vehicle or guys who talk, Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn are my guests today. That's the power panel. We've got some great questions coming in. Let's jump into one of them. Gentlemen, um, how do you explain these verses? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's 1 John 2.15. Verses, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yeah, you've got two different understandings of the word world there in the sense that in John 3.16, that statement is talking about, for God so loved the world of sinful people. It's really emphasis is on people. I don't know you understand the world there, for the word cosmos. When you get to First John, it's talking about the things of the world that we value. Now, people are always valuable. So we are called to be care about people and care about their salvation. But the things of this world, no. Like, how much money have I got? How much power have I got? How much opportunity? Those are the things that we're not to be striving for or make them a priority over Jesus. We make Jesus the priority, and those things fall in place. When we don't make him the priority, then we're in trouble. Yeah, I agree. God loves people, right? When he says he so loved the world, he's talking about the people in this world. And uh, and when it says, do not love the world, do not conform to the world, it's to the it's the world's ways, the world's stuff. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 5 or 6, do not store up your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store your treasures in heaven where they can't be destroyed and can't be stolen because where your treasure is, that is where your heart is also. So we can be thankful for the things that, the physical things that we have and conveniences we have in this world uh, but really, God loves people, not things. That's why he says the greatest commandment. And what's the second? Love your neighbor as yourself. Right. Here's a question. I'm hearing this more and more. I just heard it yesterday. I think you heard it on this show. So if the Bible is God-breathed, where are all the non-essentials I'm hearing about? Now, we had a discussion yesterday about uh, we're going to have diversity of understanding. You know, we can talk about um, there is going to be a rapture. But at what time will you be raptured? You know, is it essential that we all agree on that? And I think the answer is no, not essential. But it's essential that we understand Jesus is returning. That's essential. Right. So well, it's not a salvation issue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the how much doctrine did the guy on the cross next to Jesus understand? Mm, I'm guessing zero. Yeah. I mean, we don't know who he was. Mm-hmm. We don't know what his background was. Was he a Jew? Was he, did he understand a basic understanding of Yahweh of the Bible, right? Uh, we don't know. We don't know how much doctrine he has. But he said this, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Yep. He put his faith in Christ for his eternal salvation. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. He was saved by his profession of faith, by his belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was saved. Um, so, that is the hurdle for salvation. Now, once we're saved, we want to understand the doctrines of God, the of promises of God. We want to guard our doctrine closely and all that stuff. But so salvation, there are a, a, a core set of beliefs that I think are very important. The Christ, the divinity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and so on. But there's many issues that honest, Holy Spirit-filled Christians can disagree on. Um, of course. That, that's the point. Yep, and yeah. there's no problem with that. So long as we keep Jesus at the center, we can work out the other things and determine that's not going to make my fellowship with you one way or the other. What does, 
is the shed blood of Jesus. Now, the question is, baptism the same as baptism in the Spirit? Hmm. You know, I, this question about baptism, water baptism versus spirit baptism or baptism of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, I think you turn immediately to Acts 10 and 11 to define the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit, because this is the phrase that, talk about differences of opinion, there's sectors of Christianity that have one view of what baptism of the Holy Spirit is, and there's others that have a different view. In Acts 10 and 11, Peter goes to the first Gentile, Cornelius's house, and he preaches the gospel to them. And while Peter was speaking, verse 44 in, in, in Acts 10, it says, while Peter was speaking the, these words, the Holy Spirit came upon all of those who believed. And Peter then says, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? For they have received the Holy Spirit. Now, when he's recounting this story to the disciples, he says this, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came upon them just as it had, it had came upon us at the beginning. So it's like, you guys, you can't believe it. The Holy Spirit's coming on these Gentiles as well. Do you believe that? I mean, this was crazy stuff, right? Then I remembered, Peter says, what the Lord has said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I oppose it? In other words, baptism of the Holy Spirit, I believe in context, is receiving the Holy Spirit. But, but that's, a, that's an invisible event, so we baptize with water as a visible representation of this new life. You've got a spectrum here of how the Holy Spirit works, and you cannot nail the Holy Spirit down to one event at what time. The Holy Spirit works as the Holy Spirit sees fit. You look at uh, John the Baptist in his mother's womb. When Mary came in with Jesus in her womb, the baby leapt. I mean, come on. This is the Holy Spirit working. My experience of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit usually sneaks up on me. You know, I'm not sitting here saying, I need you, Holy Spirit, come and do something. Now, I, I pray and ask the Lord for a lot. But my spiritual awakening is still a mystery. Hmm. How did I come to this conclusion that Jesus is the only way? I've read the scriptures. I grew up in the church. I heard all this stuff. But the Spirit did something inside of me so deep that I think I'm willing to die for it. And I think that, that the Spirit can—here's one of the things— we have a tendency to take these and codify them. We want them, we want them logical and neat. Well, good luck, because I don't know anywhere in life you can do, do that and make sense out of it, especially in relationships. The spirit moves and the spirit moves. And there are some people that I know personally that are very strong on the baptism of the Holy Spirit and have experienced it four or five times. <laughs> now, explain that one. You know, I mean, that gets confusing. The spirit moves when the spirit wants to move to raise us up to be the people he wants us to be. Our choice is whether we then respond and obey or that we go our own way. All right, Matthew twelve thirty, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. These are pretty uh, black and white words. Well, uh, there, there are many churches Jesus couldn't preach in because that sounds awfully harsh. And yet this is the Jesus that we don't teach enough. This is the same Jesus, you know, that... that you know, loves the lambs and is the good shepherd and all of that language. This is the same Jesus, and we need to under, have the understanding of the full Jesus because he's serious. If you're not with me, you're lost. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how kind you've been. I don't care what you've done in this world. If you don't know me, you're not getting in. And that's a message that most people really don't want to hear. 
You know, and the first thing I hear is, well, what about my my dad and mom who didn't really, you know, go to church or believe in that? If they didn't know Jesus, I'm sorry. The Bible says they're lost. If they do know him, they're with him eternally. That's a hard message, but it, if you look at Jesus seriously, um, he is the most offensive person on the face of the earth. I mean, he, he tells it like it is, and whether we like it or not, it's the reality. You know, Scripture says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. There's two kinds of people in this world. You either know Christ and are saved and have eternal life and an inheritance that can never spoil or perish kept in heaven for you, shielded by God's power, or you don't. You know, there's there's two roads. There's two doors. There's two gates. There's a narrow road that leads to eternal life. There's a wide road that leads to destruction. That's what John 3.16 declares, right? Mm -hmm. That there's two choices. If you believe, then you will have eternal life. If you don't, you will perish. That's what Scripture says. It's a very simple truth. You know, Jesus is the one who says, no, your father is the devil, right? For those who believe, your father is God. We are adopted into his family. You know, one of the great lies of this world is we're all children of God. No, only those who receive Jesus are called children of God, are given the right to be called sons of God. And another great lie in this world is all roads lead to God. And uh, the Bible makes it clear. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, one mediator between God and man. I had an older woman in a congregation early in my ministry who explained this the best I've ever heard. This lady was brilliant. Uh, And I think she had like a third grade education, quite honestly, (laughs) but she knew her Bible. And she said, what Jesus is saying is, you're born in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. You can't swim. You're going to drown. No matter what you do, you're not going to get out of it. Jesus comes along with his boat and he offers you a ride and says, get in. No, no, no. I don't need you, Jesus. I can handle this on my own. She says, you're still going to drown. You're still going to die. And if you're in the middle of that ocean and you cry out, Jesus, save me, he'll come over to you. But if you don't have him, you can't tread water very long. And I remember that you can't tread water a long time. I thought that was a good illustration. Mm-hmm. And that comment, Jeff, that you made, we talked about this in the green room, your father is the devil. Probably not a good way to start an evangelistic opportunity (laughs) with anyone, although it's true. It it, it is. You either have life or you don't, and you either belong to this world or you belong to God. And, uh, but you're right. Uh, When, look, if you're going to share Christ, one, hopefully your life represents a good testimony for the truth that you're going to share somebody. So hopefully your life matches it to a certain extent and you are a good, credible witness to that person. But two, it's got to be out of love. I mean, if you're going to love your your neighbor and want them and desire them to be saved, just like God does, who wishes none to perish, well, then it's got to be motivated by this love. Remember, today is the day of salvation, mm-hmm. not the day of judgment. I think us as Christians find ourselves oh, God, just judge that whole group of people over there. No, there is a day of judgment coming, but today is the day of salvation. Yep. Hmm. All right, I think I'm going to take a break because we've got some more questions coming in, and I want to get uh, these guys ready for them. If you uh, would like to send in questions, we are going to run Guy Talk for an extension today. We're going to go 30 minutes into the next hour. And my power panel is Jeff Verdorn and uh, Tom Parrish. So let me know what questions you might have. You can send them over by text to 877-933-2484, 877-933-2484. 
888-528-8484. You can also email me, bill at myfaithradio.com. We'd love to get your questions. Maybe you've been struggling with something for a long time. Maybe you're reluctant to approach your pastor. Just let me know what it is. We'll get it on the air. play violin violin like that i'd love for you to be on my show we're here with uh, guy talk guys who talk jeff Redorn, tom Parrish. love your questions they've got good ones coming in here's one that just popped in what's the difference between christianity and orthodox christianity well you're talking about the eastern church compared to the western church and that divide came about a long time ago in christianity uh the eastern church used to be centered in constantinople which is now istanbul and then you had a Western church, which was centered in Rome. So you've got two different uh, avenues for the same gospel message, and each took on uh, a different form of how to express that. The Eastern church got very strongly into what we know as icons and moving in that direction. The Western church um, did as well, but not to the same extent. And yet there has been cooperation between the two over the centuries, because in the end, if they believe, Jesus is still the answer. But it's been a tough one. Now, the word orthodox, I'll focus on that as kind of the accepted way or the traditional way or so on. So what is orthodoxy within the Christian church? Well, it depends which church denomination you kind of belong to. They all have their own definition of what is orthodox. Um, You know, that's why, by the way, we should always go back to Scripture to answer our theological questions and and because uh, that was written 2,000 years ago and hasn't changed uh, with the with the different churches um, I like to I'll just point out on this one that there's really one true Christian church and that is all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that is God's church and it's headed by Christ himself he is the head so yep I agree totally with that and really we're looking at different ways uh, different traditions and how that is lived out that makes the big difference between the two. All right, here's a question, definitely non-controversial. <laughs> uh, <laughs> predestination versus free will, I know, is a big topic. However, how do we understand the passages that say that Jesus took on the sin of the world? Did he take on the sin of just those who would believe, or did he take on the sin of all mankind for all of history and future? Thank you, by the way, for this program. You guys rock. Hmm. Can, can we phone a friend on this one? Or <laughs> you guys got a lifeline? That you yeah, a lifeline we want to use. Um, let's start with free will. Yeah. Does man have free will? Um, and this is a question that, to me, seems very self-evident studying Scripture. Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. Uh, Joshua said, choose this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord Choose life, God says. I mean, over and over. Believe in me. Trust in God. Trust also in me. These are all, these are all exhortations to a person's decision making. Choose me. Choose life. Choose eternity. If whoever, whosoever believes in me, that Greek word for believe is pistuio, 
And it's a, it's a belief. I'm going to believe it's true and entrust for salvation. It's actually, this is actually kind of maybe too detailed. In the Greek, that word is in the active voice, meaning you are responsible for believing, right? And then sozos, the salvation, is in the passive voice. That's God's work. God is the one who saves, but he saves whoever believes. That's an act of free will. Um, and it, it's, it seems clear to me that we have a will. The problem is not that we don't have a will. The problem is we have a will and we use it. I think that's the problem. So, Predestination has uh, been codified uh, by Protestants into the fact that some are going to be saved and some are not going to be saved. And you have no choice. It simply is the way it is from God's perspective. And I don't really see that. You know, I look at the totality of Scripture, not just a particular verse. And so when I look at the totality, and I just taught on this recently, I was mentioning in the uh, on the break, when we talk about predestination, predestination, the Greek word there certainly means foreknowledge. But is it the foreknowledge that I'm going to send you to hell and I'm going to send you to heaven? Or is the foreknowledge that the Lord knows exactly how he made us, exactly what we're supposed to be in this world, exactly how we can bring the kingdom? And his role is then in our lives to conform us to that through the trials, the ups and downs, so that in the end we are as closely shaped to what he intended or predestined in the first place. And we see people like that who live their life in such a way that they have changed the lives of so many others. That person has a predestination. I have a predestination from the Lord. Bill, you have one. It's for all of us. Do we fit into that mold, and do we let Jesus work with us? And you're right, Jeff Minnett, we have the free will. So we can say no, or we can say yes. And, you know, the goal of the Scripture is to get to say yes over and over and over through Mm -hmm. good times and bad. That's why Paul says rejoice even in troubles, because the Lord is working in you to his own goodwill. So let's take the atonement next. Kind of the second part of that question is, did Jesus die for some, the elect? Was his atoning work on the cross limited in some way just to the elect of God? Or was his atoning work on the cross universal? Did he die for everyone? Again, I go right back to the scriptures. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time, he made one of the clearest declarations, which I think straightforwardly answers this question. Mm Mm-hmm. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? So to me, Christ died for everyone. Um, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, well, to me, the whole world is under sin. Yep. So he died for sinners, which the whole world was. And to me, the, the greatest verse of all actually comes from 1 John 2, 2, which says this. this. This is a direct statement of his atoning work. Uh, like I said, again, some believe it was just for believers. Others say, no, it was for everybody in the world. Well, First John 2, 2 definitively answers this question. It says, he was the atoning sacrifice for our sins, the church's sins, believer's sins, but not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so to me, I think Scripture declares that Jesus' atoning work on the cross was universal to all. And the reason you don't create, I don't, create a theology that simply says it's all over and done, whether you believe it or not, is because it's not consistent with the Scripture itself. The Scripture says the Lord is eminently fair, eminently just, eminently righteous, and therefore he's not going to do anything that we would say was unfair. When we stand before him and say, well, it wasn't fair that I was condemned from day one, he's going to say, that's not true. 
I gave you ample opportunity to come to me. You chose not to do that. The burden is on us. And was one old pastor once told me, mm-hmm. he said, when you get to heaven, Jesus gets all the credit. If you go to hell, it's all your fault. <laughs> I am never the smartest guy in the room. <laughs> Which is fine. All right, here's another question that came in about uh, can you help sort these two verses out? One would be Matthew seven twenty one through 23, where he says, uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, mm-hmm. but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, and compare that to Ephesians 2, 8, which is, it is for by grace you've been saved through faith. I think... No, go ahead. I think we've made a mistake in Christianity. I don't think we meant to do it. I just think we did. In that, especially the turn of the 20th century, with so much evangelism, Billy Sunday and and Billy Graham, who I've worked with, and and all of those, where was the emphasis put? The emphasis was put on the initial act of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Absolutely. But very little talk after that about discipleship. And discipleship is the way you live out that salvation in this world. You're not trying to earn it. You're trying to live it out thankfully. And I think here in this case, Jesus is pointing out that these people, you know, just missed the boat. They claimed to know him, but their life didn't really reflect that. And even though they did, you know, all these good things, they were done for the wrong reasons. And it comes back to the fact that everything we do once we're saved, everything should be done out of thankfulness for what Jesus has done for us. You know, oh, go ahead, Jeff. Well, I was just going to say, I, this question has come up in my classes a lot. I know in your church, Tom, but people have a fear that they're going to be, a, a, as a believer, they're going to hear these words and, and hear this, depart from me, I never knew right. you. And it's like, oh, it's fair. It's like, no, if you are in Christ Jesus, first and foremost, you will never hear these words, I never knew you, because the Lord knows you, you know the Lord, you are one, you've been united with Christ. So first and foremost, I think the key to this passage is verse 15, which tells us who Jesus is talking about here, and it's false prophets. They came to you in sheep's clothing. By their fruits, you will recognize them. They are ferocious wolves. These are the ones, these false prophets, who are going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you, because they didn't have genuine faith. If your focus all your life is on Jesus. You're in. If your focus is anywhere else, you got problems. All right. Good discussion, gentlemen. And then there's this verse that God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Is that just the heart of God? That is the heart of God. It is. It's his character. Mm-hmm. Here's another question. Uh, the David was described as a, a man after God's own heart. What was the quality of David that got him that expression? Oh, good question. I mean, I would say, I've never thought of this before, but I would say his faith. I mean, he believed God because it's obviously not by what he did. I mean, he didn't live his life very well, right? He kills a man, takes his wife and, you know, so on. And yet, if you see David's heart coming through in the Psalms, oh my goodness, you know, he pants for God. He leads me beside still water. I mean, it's just amazing his love for the Lord. So I would say it's his faith and his love for the Lord. And and remember, as the previous question said, we do not get to heaven by our works Mm -hmm. and our works don't kick us out of heaven. It's our faith that gets us in, period. So one of the other thing about David that's interesting, when Nathan confronted him about what he had done and, and Bathsheba and all that went on with that, David didn't deny it. 
David didn't fight back and say, hey, wait a minute, I'm the king here. I, you can't talk to me that way. David recognized what he had done, and he, he quickly went into repentance. Now, there's a terrible price he had to pay in this family, yeah. and, and that went on for generations. So there is a consequence, but David himself, having the heart of God, was quick to see the truth and respond to it in a positive way. Good point. I like that. My um, thought would be he had a repent, repentant heart. Yes, he did. Yeah. All right, we're going to continue Guy Talk uh, for another 30 minutes. So this is the extended version, and the pizza guy just showed up, uh, <laughs> and he's here to tell me that my credit card was declined. So <laughs> that's kind of a bummer for the guys that oh, well. uh, thought they were going to have a snack <laughs> over the next four minutes. Turns out they're not. But we're going to be in here for another 30 minutes, which means we've got time for your question. We have some great questions that have come in today. We'd love to hear more. All you have to do is text them over, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can do that as well. Bill at MyFaithRadio.com. After a short break, we will be right back with more Guy Talk. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.